Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast podcast. This episode is based around the song Passengers, fairly loosely, as you'll find out. There is a place like no other. A place where nature reigned supreme for three million years until the coming of the sun. A place where every morning more than 3,000 workers rise with a dawn to turn your fantasies into reality. Sun City was a Vegas-style luxury resort in the northwest of South Africa, about two hours from Johannesburg, which opened in 1979. Uh, some people in South Africa would say it wasn't in South Africa, that it was located in Bop Huthatswana, known as Bop, thankfully, which South Africa had unilaterally declared to be an independent state. That meant that, unlike the rest of South Africa, gambling was allowed there and so were topless review shows. It was also racially mixed. If you had the large amounts of money you needed, then you'd be welcome there, no matter what the colour of your skin was. All of this provided a technical get-out clause for any international musical artists who chosen to break the UN's cultural boycott of South Africa by playing there. But if those musicians had stepped out of the dream and out through the gates, they would have found themselves deep in the reality of apartheid South Africa. Bop was one of the ten South African Bantu stands, or homelands, reservations that existed to segregate black South Africans from the whites. The Bantu stands, the slum conditions, the dehumanisation, the brutalisation, for example, the Sharpeville massacre in 1960, the Soweto uprising in 1976, these things belonged to the 19th century, where they'd originated from, and the world's eye had turned onto South Africa, and it didn't much like what it saw. So musicians who agreed to appear at Sun City's 6,000-capacity Super Bowl arena caught a lot of ire from the press, from the Musicians' Union in the UK, and from the UN itself, who'd initiated the cultural boycott in 1968 and then reaffirmed it in 1980 to try and force change. For his part, Elton was on hiatus in the first half of 1983. He started off the New Year holidaying in Sydney, Australia, watching the cricket. At the same time, Chris Thomas was in LA, putting the final touches onto Too Low for Zero, which wouldn't come out until the beginning of summer. Elton had nothing booked, no promotional duties, no gigs. He went into holiday mode. He'd split up with his boyfriend, Gary Clark, he of the Elton, my Elton memoir, um, at the end of 1982. According to Gary, Elton was meeting a lot of guys from a range of backgrounds and bringing them back to Woodside. One of these liaisons led to some of his jewellery being stolen, and when that eventually went to court in 1985, it probably provided a few interesting contacts for the press to follow up on, something that probably came in handy for them in the years to come. Anyway, Elton's last shows had been a Christmas residency at the Hammersmith Odeon in December 1982. 
probably sounded the right speed to the band at the time. Elton had spent £30,000 in today's money, wrapping the building up like a present. He wasn't in a good way though. And unlike the Christmas shows of 73 and 74 at the Hammersmith Odeon, he didn't really enjoy these gigs. One show on the 14th of December turned into an absolute farce. This was the show that Elton, Davy, and Dee were left to play as a three-piece because Nigel failed to turn up. and the band battled on when they got to Benny and the Jets things went from bad to worse when Elton kicked out his piano stool and it bashed into the shoulder of a lady in the front row he then proceeded to be extremely defensive and offhand presumably he was mortified but telling the lady to go and seek help from the RSPCA the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals was not a very kind thing to do sorry, I'm going to He left the venue for a drive around the block before returning for the encore. Here's Elton talking to Mel Redding about the gigs in late 1983. Well, I, I hadn't played England with a band for a long time. Um, God, it must have been five, six years. I'd done the Ray Cooper tour, um, but I hadn't played with that band uh, or with a band, a rock and roll band. And I thought, I'm either going to go into Wembley's pool, which I don't like, I don't like that for concert. I don't really want to go into Earl's Court. So what I'll do, I'll play 14 nights at Hammersmith Odeon because Hammersmith is my favourite venue to go and see a rock and roll show in London. It's, it's a great atmosphere. Um, unfortunately, towards the end, it drove me crazy because 14 nights in any one place does... I mean, I like to move on. We were getting very, very tired by that point. I guess that's why they call it The Blues was released in advance of the album in the UK in April 1983 and the promotional machine was getting into gear there were tentative plans in place for a double-headed tour with Rod Stewart. Here's Elton speaking to Mal Redding again. 
So I didn't want to go on stage and do my hits and him do his hits. We were going to do sort of like, it was going to be like a 1980s revamped version of the Steam Packet and doing all old Motown medleys and stuff like that. Great old Sam and Dave stuff. Um, it was on the cars. We had these bo uh, dates booked in Australia. Um, I think um, he's really wanting to concentrate. He wants to go in the studio and do an album, which he's doing at the moment. Whatever his decision is fine by me. We, I mean, there was a story saying we'd fallen out. Well, I just got a little annoyed because I got a telex, that's all, not a phone call. But now it's all been sorted out. I'd like to thank Mal for giving me permission for using his interview in this way. So Elton's engagement of seven shows at Sun City in October 1983 turned out to be his only full band shows that year. No set lists have come to light, so it's not known whether they debuted any Too Low for Zero songs out there. Frank Sinatra had been the first major artist to go there in 1981, and he was followed by the likes of the Beach Boys, Cher, Liza Minnelli and Tina Turner. By the time Rod and Elton had gone, and particularly Queen, who went in 1984, these visits were getting a lot of negative attention. Here's Elton in January 1984, just a couple of months after the visit, defending his choice to play out there in an interview with Paul Gambaccini. Nobody's going to tell me I can't go anywhere and, and have a look for myself. Um, if people hadn't have been able to buy the tickets, if it hadn't been mixed, I wouldn't have gone. I went to check it out with, when Rob was done it. But the most ludicrous thing of that me being put on a United Nations blacklist from by Americans when they had the Ku Klux Klan and when we had the National Front. The only way you're ever going to solve a problem is by, not politically, I mean I learned that when I went for a meeting with a local councillor at Watford, how important I was, I met Zilch. So the only way I can improve things is by going and playing music. And George Benson's done it, he went down there and played to, in Soweto. And it's nonsense to say that. I mean, it's nonsense to make sport and, and music a political issue. I really think they're actually talking out the back of their asses. And you're not terrified at uh, Ken Livingston and the GLC banning Oh, him. bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see for myself. I don't want to be told what it's like. I want to see for myself the facts. That's why I went to Russia. I've been to China. And now I want to go and see somewhere else. I don't want to... I want to make my own mind up. Those, there's not much difference between people anywhere. They're usually nice people. It's just that you get distorted views of it. When I went to Russia, I couldn't believe how much the Americans they were. The, the actual people in the street were as warm and as friendly as Americans are initially. And I wouldn't have thought that until I'd gone there. So I found that out. And, you know, you're told so many things. I want to see it for myself. And nobody... To tell you that I can't go to South Africa. When we have people in the English cricket team who are South Africans, but English players can't play there. It's just hypocrisy beyond belief. Bureaucracy gone mad. And I'll fight for that. Music and sport bring people much closer together than they are. There are echoes here of present-day spats between musicians. Roger Waters and Radiohead springs to mind, in that case over the rights and wrongs of boycotting Israel. The UN was prepared to make pronouncements back then on South Africa, and that's how it came to be that Elton found himself on the UN Centre Against Apartheid's Register, or blacklist, of artists who'd broken its cultural boycott. This dubious bit of recognition, his fee for the shows and some items of jewellery weren't the only things that Elton brought back from South Africa. He also brought back a recording of a folk song that he and Davy had found and wanted to make use of. These days, there'd be people who call this cultural appropriation. There are plenty of other words for it, though. Field work. Folklore studies, song collection, ethnomusicology. In the end, though, 
it's rich white people primarily going out and collecting the music and traditions of much poorer black people and it's this dynamic that makes it ripe for reassessment some musical borrowings were done in better faith than others 35 years before Elton found his South African folk song, Alan Lomax had done the same with this song, Mbube, by Solomon Linda, which was a hit in South Africa in 1939, and he brought it to Pete Seeger in 1949. <laughs> of this song which goes Uyimbube which means you are a lion was misheard as Uyimbube and that sequence of sounds the topic of the song the falsetto vocal line and the rhythm and the whole feel of the song were lifted wholesale from the Solomon Linda original then and now if you could call a song traditional and arranged by you you'd get 100% of the royalties, hardly any encouragement to look deeply into just how a song came into being. In this case, they just said that they thought that Linda had covered a traditional Zulu song, and let that be the end of it. For what it's worth, Pete Seeger was strongly advocating modernising this system in his later years. It still goes on. A great deal of Timberland's early career was based around samples of Arabic music, which he initially tried to pass off as his own work. He'll say he didn't, but he did. Mbube and Solomon Linda's family eventually became Disney's headache when they used the song in the Lion King musical. For his part, Elton did give a songwriting credit for his fairly significant borrow. Okay, so here's the song that Passengers was based on. Isonto Lezayoni by Zulu musician Phineas Mkize. Let's go, 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 let's go
about this song on the sadly defunct Ask Davy Johnson website. It was both he and Elton that discovered the original. Davy also shares a songwriting credit for this song. I've always been really puzzled about how it came into being. It's one of the main reasons that I've researched this episode, but I've not been able to find any more about how they actually came across it. In all likelihood, it was passed to them by an executive from Gallo Records, who brought the record out. Maybe Eric Gallo, uh, the uh, CEO himself, during Elton's Sun City visit. I've spoken to Phineas Mkise's son, Bennett, by email for this episode, and he also believes that that was the connection. I'd like to wholeheartedly thank Bennett for agreeing to answer my questions because now we can fill in some details about Phineas Mkise's life. Bennett told me that his family still live in the same area that they always have, KwaZulu-Natal, which is 90 minutes north of Durban, 
on the east coast of South Africa. Phineas used to stay in Johannesburg to find work. Bennett says that he and his siblings had a typical upbringing for that area, which unfortunately included regular violence and killings in their village, such that in some years school didn't get to start up until springtime. Phineas had three wives and 18 children, none of whom ended up going into music, according to Bennett. Bennett says that the album Isonto Lesioni was released in the late 1970s. Wikipedia says differently that it was released in 1963. Bennett says that the song was popular locally in the Mafomulo region. The song is in the Maskandi style, which is a form of Zulu folk music, which is alive to this day. Um, Isonto Lesioni means Church of Zion, but the way it's used in the song is as if it's somebody's name. The lyrics say, Wisonto Lesioni, Ube which translates to Isonto Lesioni, Why do you run away? Phineas, by the way, was not a political writer. He hated politics because so many people were dying because of their affiliations at that time in South Africa. Phineas retired from music in 1991, with his last album being called Enkanyezini, which is the name of his home in Mafumulo. He became a traditional healer, and he passed away in 2006. Bennett says that his father used to speak a lot about Elton John and the role that he ended up playing in his music. He was always excited that his music was being listened to overseas. I'd like to thank Bennett again for sharing his memories of his father and for helping us to put things into context. Elton took a lot of elements from Mkise's original song. The whole rhythm and arrangement is very similar. The accordion refrain is identical, as is the main melody of the chorus, both the call and the response part. The bulk of the lyrics of the chorus are in fact a mishearing of the original Zulu lyric, Ube Ekeane, becoming Huana Get On. And then Huana Get On would have led them straight to deny the passenger and to the topic of the song. So here's what they put together. Recorded with Chris Thomas in Montserrat for the Breaking Hearts album and then released as the second single from that album in the UK in August 1984. Oh, 
it made the top five in the UK and the top 10 in Australia. Sounds like a success to me. In South Africa, it was Elton's first single to finish outside of the top 10. It only made it to number 15 in the main charts, but locally, I think it did a bit better in some areas. In the US, Who Wears These Shoes came out instead. The song's got an extended remix. I think it's the first of the 80s songs to get that treatment. A couple of extra minutes added in by looping some sections, dropping out parts here and there, doubling up the African percussion sounds and slicing up Elton's vocal in the breakdown section, generally spoiling the flow of the song. Presumably, at this time, these mixes were being done by Chris Thomas, since no one else is named on there. Wikipedia says that the song was recorded in December 1983, just a few weeks after the Sun City shows. I'm not sure where they get that information from. The album was recorded in two bursts, first off in December 1983, when they did Restless, Slow Down Georgie, Lil Refrigerator, Breaking Hearts and Sad Song Say So Much. I know this much because Elton says these were the songs that were finished in an interview with Shazam in New Zealand in March 1984 and he says that they're going to go in and finish the album off which is what they did they went back to Air Studios in Montserrat the following month so I don't know when it was recorded I'll agree with Wikipedia Davey described the process of recording this song in that answer on his Ask Davey Johnson website he said we cut it in Montserrat with the studio staff, cooks, cleaners, gardeners, etc. on the lawn outside and had a party as they sang the choruses with us. I think that sense of fun comes across in the recording. I like the bits that Elton and Davey wrote for this song. It's a catchy verse and a strong middle eight. And the whole thing holds together quite well. The world beat feel to the song has some authenticity for me. There's nothing else in the Elton John catalogue with this kind of sound. It was new territory for the band. And you've got to give them credit for attempting it and for making a hit out of it. I love Dee's upside down bass line. It rolls around the chorus in the in a really odd way around Nigel's very clever percussion. There's no piano, there's a couple of organ sounds, there's a harmonium in there, lots of acoustic guitar, and I don't think it's credited, but there is some quiet, very dry electric guitar as well. They must have considered quite carefully how to get the right sound for this song, how to avoid pastiche, to give it a bit of edge. Something to match Bernie's gritty lyric. Bernie had a cameo in the video for this song, so it's likely that he really believed in the project. What he wrote has got a clear anti-apartheid message, but he does it without being obvious or trite. There's some willfully obscure imagery in there. The non-commercial native who's living in a blood bank. It doesn't bring many coherent images to mind, that. But that is mixed in with some much more direct lines. He starts the first verse off with the idea that there's two things that are required to make up a fascist society. One hypocritical fool, a charismatic fascist leader, and one crowd that's never there, 
the silent, unthinking majority who are part of the machine, just following orders and doing what's expected of them. Bernie gets in references to mining and chain gangs in that verse as well. Have a look, it's a lesson in economical lyric writing. The jail on wheels that he talks about sounds like South Africa itself to me, still trundling on, running on the blood, bone and the tears of the African people. Someone else in front and someone else behind is... The story of white people putting themselves ahead of native people all over the world in a more literal sense. It's also the cue for a segregated form of public transport where the conductor is just doing his job. But he's falling on a ticket that no one's used in years. The conductor and the state that he represents are using old arguments that just don't cut it anymore in the modern world. The video backs up the anti-apartheid message of the song in a similarly oblique manner. It was directed by Simon Milne, the New Zealand-born director who was working a lot with Duran Duran at the time. And it was filmed in Saint-Tropez, still one of Elton's favourite holiday destinations. Intriguingly, Milne's father worked for the UN. A little fact for you there. It's possible that some of the imagery in the video was suggested by Bernie himself. We know that he would go on to make an attempt at storyboarding the Nikita video the following year. So maybe this is something he was getting into at the time. The video starts with Elton in a hotel room, echoes of Sun City here. Waking to the sound outside of a man in the jungle, black dancer, screaming at the top of his lungs. Elton's got a disillusioned look on his face. He starts to get up and go about his day, but magically the dancer is transported to the hotel room and it's him that drags a room service guy into the room, carry-on style, and then that room service guy emerges, dancing, now dressed in a loincloth. Then the black dancer himself steps out of the room, he's wearing a black jacket, he's carrying a white staff, he does a bunch of crazy laughing, he's probably meant to be some kind of witch doctor. And Elton is outside once he's got his hat on and he goes about his day along with his girlfriend in Saint-Tropez, surrounded by packs of dancers who are using moves that are somewhat reminiscent of traditional African dance. The black dancer is there as well. He's hanging around in trees and doorways, pulling people off camera and magicking onto them the same makeup as he's got on, which is essentially half black, half white face. The day goes on with more scenes of typical Saint-Tropez life being juxtaposed with the male and female dancers in their rags and in their loincloths, dancing around in packs, led by that original dancer. And then Elton starts to dance with them for short periods. Each time he's rescued, and we're rescued as well, by his girlfriend, using ever more lavish forms of transport. First, an open-top sports car, then a speedboat, and then finally a helicopter. By this time, though, his girlfriend's had her makeup done as well. And when Elton re-emerges, it's nighttime and he's made up as well, wearing a white jacket and using a black staff to magically set fire to a grand piano. The mood's gone sexual, the dancing having given way to some more primal bumping and grinding. Then it's the morning again and everything's reversed. Elton's in the jungle now, emitting the primal scream, which is something uh, you have to watch. The dancer 
in Elton's hotel room, wakes up with his own world-weary look, and then the switch happens again, and it's Elton that pulls the loincloth-wearing room service guy into the room, who then re-emerges in his uniform, carrying his tray, and Elton pops out to give us an eerie grin, with all traces of makeup having been removed. What to make of this? Firstly, the video probably wouldn't have come into being if David Bowie hadn't made Let's Dance a year earlier. Bowie had paved the way when it comes to getting MTV to embrace the anti-colonialist message. Then again, it was pretty brave of Elton, even in 1984, um, to be playing with blackface in this way. The video has got a strong and a relatively direct message Elton and the Black Dancer are interchangeable in the video. It seems to be saying that we're all the same underneath, that skin colour doesn't need to define us, maybe that we've got something to learn from the African way of life. There are two ways of life being depicted. There's the empty, decadent Western life in Saint-Tropez that Elton seemed to be getting sick of, but it keeps pulling Elton back. And then there's the other life. This, for me, is where the message gets a little bit mixed up. It would be nice if the other side of life were full of something wholesome, like a respect and love for nature and your fellow man, maybe. Instead, no, it's a life of sex and magic. Oh, well, in the end, I guess MTV gets what MTV wants. I may have overdone the analysis a little bit there, but this isn't a run-of-the-mill single. Elton and Bernie and the band were really trying to create something meaningful, something respectful to South Africa with this song, something to show that they believed in the anti-apartheid cause and that they had more depth than just being that act that was happy to play Sun City without a second thought. Of course, they never explicitly said this, not during the Gambaccini interview in January 84, when presumably they had the song in their hands, the original at least, and then not later. But it's there right in front of us. The message is there, but it didn't really seem to get through. Probably there were people that recognised the gesture, but they found it to be inauthentic. Certainly in South Africa, there were more authentic crossovers between Western and Zulu culture to be had such as in the music of Johnny Clegg, who was known as the White Zulu. Two years later, Paul Simon would release his own album of constructive engagement with South African musicians, Graceland, something that really ruffled feathers for breaking the boycott, but musically was seen as a triumph. Elton didn't stop getting it in the neck. It was all raked up again in October 1985 when Steve Van Zandt from the E Street Band put together a group protest song called Sun City, which featured Miles Davis, Bob Dylan, Lou Reed, Ringo Starr and many more. His original demo of the song went through the blacklist of names, presumably including Elton, although it hasn't surfaced. Here's the released version.
regards passengers the story basically stops there the song was probably played about 40 times during the uk and ireland leg of the ice on fire tour in 85 and early 1986 this is the version from manchester on the 1st of december Sounds like a fairly fun live song. As we'll hear at the end of the episode, the crowd get to join in with the call and response vocals in the chorus when the band are in the mood. By the time the tour moved on to mainland Europe, it had been dropped, though, in favour of Paris. The song wasn't covered by other artists. It turned up on the very best of Elton John here in the UK, which must have provided some nice royalties for Phineas Mkhize in the 90s course Bernie didn't stop thinking about South Africa in 1989 he wrote Durban Deep more of a work song than a political or protest song Elton physically returned to Sun City along with Ray Cooper in 1993 by this time the apartheid era was over although change conflict and upheaval remain a way of life out there to this day And for his part, Elton had initiated a great number of changes in his life by 1993. He'd sobered up. He found a belief in a higher power, broadly in the power for people to change the world when they work together. He was seeking redemption, and that came in the shape of his Elton John AIDS Foundation, which he set up in 1992, and which has since raised almost half a billion dollars. Also, if you check out the Charity Navigator website, you'll see um, in terms of its administrative efficiency and the accountability of the charity, it's one of the best out there. Elton's foundation works closely now with the UN on many of its initiatives. The then Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, received Elton's Founders Award from Elton's charity in 2016. And because of the nature of the AIDS epidemic, a lot of the Elton John AIDS Foundation's initiatives have been focused on helping people in Africa, Southern Africa in particular. And Elton's gone further, though. There are stories of him making low-key visits to the country. For example, in 2005, he opened up a new centre there and he toured projects that his foundation had helped to set up. 
This all culminated in Elton receiving the Harvard Humanitarian of the Year Award in 2017 for his charity work. We are so delighted to welcome Sir Elton John to Harvard University. The superstar musician was welcomed to Harvard with applause and with inspiring music from Harvard students. It was a wonderful memory of South Africa that I go to a lot and love so much. It's for his work in South Africa and around the world that brought him to Harvard today. Honored as the 2017 Humanitarian of the Year for his work raising money and awareness of HIV and AIDS. Elton's speech, which can be found on his YouTube channel, makes reference to South Africa, a place that he says he loves. And he says how apt it was that the students should have performed a piece of music from South Africa for him. It's worth watching the speech. It's great to see Elton so passionate and so well informed about the fight to overcome AIDS. So that's the end of that little tale. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode, which has been a bit of a three pronged thing, a deep dive into the song and the video for passengers, a jaunt through Elton's links with South Africa and then a tentative bit of history for the 1982-84 period of Elton's career. If you've got any comments, you can send them to me at eltonpodcast at gmail.com or feel free to put a review up on iTunes. I've worked out that you need to put in different country codes if you want to see the reviews that have been submitted in different iTunes areas. So there's more there than I'd actually realised. So as well as Really Brown, who did a great review, I need to thank Patrick, Big Fan and Bogue Herb Lives for their reviews on the US iTunes site. And I know there are some reviews elsewhere as well. So thank you very much for doing those. We're going to go out listening to the live version of Passengers in full from Wembley Arena from the 14th of December, 1985. See you next time.